Well, I'm so glad you joined us today. Uh, whether you're sitting alone in apartment in Amsterdam or you're with a group in San Ramon, it's just so great for us to be together like this. We thank God for the technology that allows us to meet uh, in this way. So I, I want to start today with you using your imagination. It's kind of a weird uh, scenario I'm going to paint for you. Imagine that you knew the day that you're going to pass from this life to the next. Uh, you knew it for, sh for certain. And knowing that you were about to die, you're able to gather your closest friends for a dinner with the specific purpose of reinforcing all that you've tried to show them from your years together. All right, you got that? So what would you talk about? What would your last conversation with them look like? What are the most important things you would want them to carry on after you pass? Well, the Apostle John was at such a gathering, sitting next to his beloved teacher, who he knew was more than a man. His mentor was the only son of God. And Jesus was sharing his final instructions for all of them before going to the cross. Fifty years later, the elderly Apostle John writes it all down. A 21-chapter gospel with five of those chapters devoted to what transpired around that table. Now, in past sermons, we've mentioned John's intentionality in organizing this book, selecting only what he felt were the most important things to be passed on about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, by devoting 20% of his gospel to this one event, it doesn't escape our attention how important what Christ communicated that evening was to John and also to us, uh, his readers. So today we're going to look at several things Jesus said that night, revealing things he wanted them to remember long after he was gone. The first thing we'll look at is the first thing Christ did in chapter 13. Let's read it together. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, the evening meal was in progress. The devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. All right, let's stop there for a moment and reflect on what Christ is doing here and why he did it. They're about to sit down to a meal with unwashed feet, which is a big deal uh, if you're reclining at a low table to break bread. Now, normally the host would have hired a paid servant to wash everyone's feet, but Jesus didn't make those arrangements because he wanted to serve them in this humbling way kneeling before each of them with the basin of water and the towel. Simon Peter was the only one to resist. And when he recoils at the thought of his beloved teacher kneeling and handling his dirty feet, Jesus responds, Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. 
That statement stuck with John for the rest of his life. So he passes it on to us. Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. If John were here today, he would tell us that this was true of them, and it's also true of us. Belonging to Jesus begins when we allow him to wash us clean. We're not truly his until we allow him to wash away the dirt that has attached itself to us wherever we have walked. We can know about him, but we cannot belong to him, and he cannot belong to us until he washes the sin away. And we can't do that for ourselves. We cannot wash away the sin that has accumulated on us. Uh, there's nothing we can do to clean up our act uh, so that we can have fellowship with God and with each other. Only Jesus can wash us clean. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his plate. Do you not understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Well, this is fascinating because until this very moment, it had not occurred to them that they were supposed to be serving each other like this, even to the degree of washing each other's dirty feet. As a matter of fact, their mindset was entirely opposite. Luke shares with us a conversation that was happening among them that very afternoon with them arguing about who among them was the greatest. It wasn't that long ago when James and John's mother had asked Jesus to seat her sons at the highest places of honor in his kingdom. Jesus' response to all of this posturing was that in his kingdom, the servants are the greatest. And to drive the point home, Jesus makes himself their servant, washing their feet on the night before his feet would be pierced. Hmm. You know, that night was not the first night Jesus had served them. It wasn't the first time at all. He just allowing them to accompany him day in and day out, giving them front row seats to all that he said and did, all the while providing for their daily physical needs. For three years, they had done little to nothing to serve the Lord. They just followed him around and he served them. Imagine that. God comes to earth but is not served by the men he chose. The Son of God comes and serves the people. Yeah, there were women who served Jesus, Martha, Joanna, Mary Magdalene. But did Simon Peter? No. Andrew? No. John? No. None of them. So now Jesus washes their feet and then tells them to start imitating him, to start serving each other, literally, and... Uh, in other ways as well, not just washing their feet, but to take the role of a servant toward one another. All right, that's great, but how does that translate to our day and age? What would it look like for us to wash each other's feet? Well, there are so many ways to serve each other. Just picture yourself doing a task for someone 
something you don't have to do, but you do it because it refreshes and serves the other person. You're obeying Christ when he told his followers to wash each other's feet, when you drop off a meal for a family with a newborn, when you check on someone who lives alone and see if they could use some company, you're washing their feet. I know a man named Ray who would drive across town to mow Julie's lawn. Julie had her hands full with a full-time job and three foster kids, but every Saturday, Ray would show up to take care of the landscaping. There's a group of men at Cornerstone who identify single women, widows who need the guys to spend their Saturday at their house doing cleanup and repair. They're washing her feet. The people who teach your children on your campus on a Sunday are washing your feet by allowing you to enjoy a distraction-free hour with other Christians. The people who put together this service digitally and are presenting it to you right now wash your feet every weekend. There are so many ways we can jump in and serve each other. Why not ask the Lord to reveal something you could do for someone else and then get busy having some fun serving them? Let's keep moving where Jesus shocked them all by calling out Judas the betrayer. Then he tells them once again that he will soon be gone. Look at verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. Now remember, they're not understanding that where he is going is into death. They, they picture him going away somewhere. A new command I give you, he says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus' final command to them was for them to love each other like he had loved them. They were to serve each other and they were to love each other. Jesus knew that when outsiders saw this diverse group demonstrating their love for each other, they would identify them as Christ's true disciples. More than if they preached well, more than if they healed people, more than if they served the poor, it will be their love for each other that will set them apart. That's what people will notice. 25 years later, the Apostle Paul will write a letter to the believers in the Greek city of Corinth. And in chapter 13 of that book, Paul defines love by saying, if I could speak all the languages of the earth and angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is, is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful, proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. Uh, it keeps no record of being wrong. It, it does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love.
This passage is often quoted at weddings, but honestly, I don't think Paul was thinking about romance when he wrote the definition of love. I believe he was writing about Jesus, the one who loves perfectly and completely. Jesus, who selected a group of students to walk with him for a while, loving them, serving them, teaching them more by how he treated them, but by anything he did for others. Then he told them to serve and love each other. Now, this would have been a challenge for them because of how different they were. They hadn't been asked to vote on who made the cut as disciples, and none of them would have chosen everyone in this group for their own ministry team. Think of it. One of Christ's disciples was Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a radical, sometimes violent group that was intent on overthrowing the oppressive Roman government, even assassinating Roman collaborators. But another disciple, Matthew, was one of the guys the Zealots were out to get. Matthew had become wealthy by collecting Rome's exorbitant taxes, levying on the occupied Jewish nation. The tax collectors were hated. There was James and John, the aggressive sons and thunder, uh, Thomas, uh, the doubter, Philip, always slow to understand. Simon Peter acted before he thought, at one point, slicing off a man's ear. This was the group Jesus chose to lead his church. He was about to give them the keys to his kingdom, and he knows they will have to stick together. They will have to love and serve each other like he has loved and served them. They will have to be unified. Now, we won't get that far in this sermon, but later today, you're gonna to wanna to read Christ's prayer right here in John 17, right before he leads them to Gethsemane. In that prayer, Jesus asks the Father to unify them. Jesus knew that it would not be outside forces that would do the most to damage the church. It would be disunity, quarrels, and division from within. Boy, don't we know that in 2020 and 2021 about the church. All right, back to chapter 13, where after Judas leaves, Simon Peter declares his undying loyalty to Christ. Jesus, he said, I would lay down my life for you if necessary. Then Jesus shocks them all by predicting that before dawn, Peter will deny ever knowing Jesus. Well, this is all too much for any of them to fathom. Christ sees it in their eyes. So he says in chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your heart be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. As if a group like this can control their own anxiety. Jesus says, don't allow what I'm sharing with you all to scare you. Don't let anxiety and fear control this group. Don't allow your hearts to be troubled, even in troubling times. Don't be afraid, even in fearful times. Easy to say, difficult to do. Well, Christ continues in chapter 14, verse 5, uh, when Thomas asks him where he is going when he leaves them. Uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. 
From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Okay, that's such a mystery. Um, Jesus is in the Father, even though he's on earth. Jesus comes to earth to reveal God to us. He came to earth doing exactly what the Father would do. Now think about that. How many different things Christ revealed to us about his Father? They had all seen everything they needed to know about God the Father by traveling with Jesus and observing his behavior. Before they met the Lord, they would have seen God as distant, somewhat uninvolved. But Jesus revealed God to be close, to be involved in their daily lives, to be concerned about what concerns us. Before they met Jesus, they saw God as someone who required them to make continual blood sacrifices to cover for their failure to abide by 614 rules and regulations. Jesus narrowed it all down to two commands to organize their behavior around, and then the next day, Christ made himself the atoning sacrifice. What other God offers themselves as the sacrifice to atone for human failure? Hmm. You know, before Jesus, the disciples would not have deemed themselves worthy to come close into God's presence. But then Jesus came along and not only chose them, he also associated with people they had classified as unworthy or unclean. Lepers, the demon-possessed, Samaritans, an adulterous woman, Roman collaborators. What is Jesus revealing about God the Father when he does that? Well, that is a great question for a long discussion. What are all the ways that Jesus revealed God? Things about God we would not have known otherwise. How did Jesus break apart our assumptions of who God is, what he's like? In what ways was Jesus a pleasant surprise? Then in chapter 14, verse 15, Christ promises to, to send the Holy Spirit after he leaves. Uh, uh, if you love me, keep my commands, he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. Now the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, Jesus says. I will come to you. What a great promise. And then look at verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Hmm. 
If that's not a scripture for today, I don't know what is. Don't allow your hearts to be troubled. Don't be afraid. Receive Christ's peace. And one more thing, stay connected. Chapter 15, I am the vine, the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. I chose you and appointed you to bear lasting fruit. That's why we've been chosen, uh, with a purpose, to bear fruit. But what is fruit? What is it we are supposed to be producing as a result of being chosen and being connected to Jesus like a vine and branches? Fruit. Well, it's, it's everything we do for others. It's the legacy we leave. It's what we give our children, our disciples, anyone we are in constant contact with. What we say and do that is like what Jesus said and did, that's our fruit. And how do we consistently say and do what Jesus would say and do? Verse 4, he says it, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Well, this word remain that he repeats over and over is also translated abide or stay put or live there. Jesus wants us to dwell in him, connected to him, allowing the nourishing long-term connection to feed us like a vine feeds its branches. Look at verse 5, I'm the vine, he says, you're the branches. If a person remains in me and I in them, they will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can, can do nothing. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, remain in my love. He just keeps saying it and saying it. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus is telling us how we're gonna find contentment and peace no matter what the season. Serving one another, loving one another, abiding in Christ. And listen one more time to Jesus who speaks peace to our troubled hearts today. Peace, he says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. 
I do not give to you as the world gives. Thank God for that. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You know, the world will always offer us plenty of things to make us anxious and fearful. We must keep Jesus close during these times. We must remain in him because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's peace. As I was preparing this sermon, so many of you came to, to my mind and there are so many more that I have no idea what you're struggling with. I do know that many, many of us are struggling to find peace during these troubling times. There's plenty of things to be anxious about. There are plenty of things to be fearful of. And yet Jesus meets with us today by the power of his Holy Spirit and not only comforts our hearts, but challenges us to choose to allow him to bring peace. It's interesting to think that we can actually control our own anxiety. We can actually dispel our own fears just by leaning into what Christ has promised us and into his presence even here and now. Friend, Christ is with you right there. He's wanting you to open up and receive his peace. Hmm. To, to breathe out the anxiety and to breathe in the grace, to, to breathe out the, the fear and to breathe in courage, um, to breathe out all that we've lost and to breathe in all that God still has for us. We're not the first generation to go through troubled times. These are our troubled times. But people have always been able to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit and find nourishment, strength. I encourage you to sit with us today. Uh, don't just move on into your day and say, well, that was a good sermon. No, actually receive this as a word from the Lord. Fear not, for I am with you, he says. Hmm. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for this wonderful congregation scattered all over the world that is joined together now. And I pray that we would gather all of those negative thoughts that have been plaguing us this week, even disturbing our sleep, affecting our dreams. Father, that heaviness that is on so many of us, I pray that you lift it off and that we would have unexplainable joy peace that surpasses understanding. And then, Lord, we would bear fruit by just sharing that peace with other people. Lord, everybody around us is anxious. I've just noticed people just picking up that fear that we had at the beginning of, of this last year and, and, and re-embracing it. Father, help us not to look to our circumstances to determine our moods or our outlook on the future. Give us peace. You're the Prince of Peace. Pour out your grace upon us. Heal us. Meet our many needs, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right now, in the same spirit of prayer, just listen to the words of Psalm 46. God bless you. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, 
though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake in their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.